Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we have embarked on a series of sermons through this chapter, and we are seeking to memorize this chapter as a congregation over the next year or so, trying to memorize the first 17 verses by the first of the year, and then the second half of the chapter in the spring. So Romans chapter 8, and let's read again verse, the first four verses of the chapter here. We're coming today to verse number four of Romans chapter 8. This is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Amen. These opening verses, these first four verses, are laying the doctrinal groundwork of the eternal security of all people who are united to Jesus Christ. I've already pointed out to you by way of introduction to this chapter that eventually what the believer in Christ is going to be assured of is that in spite of their struggle with the flesh, they are not under condemnation. And in spite of the grief and the pain and the bitterness of the sufferings of this present time, they will not experience any separation. The rich doctrinal groundwork of that assurance in this precious passage is being laid in these first four verses. And then once we get out of the first four verses... The passage, this chapter is going to divide into those two parts of the Christian and his flesh and the Christian and suffering. And those are the two issues that most unsettle Christians, aren't they? When it comes right down to it, those are are the two most unsettling things in each of our lives. And this chapter is going to deal with those things very candidly. And it's going to give us hope and clarity in our war against the flesh and and in our struggle to trust God in times of trouble. But this morning we come to verse number four, which is the final verse in this opening section of rich doctrinal groundwork. And what we're going to do is just focus on the first half of the verse. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The second half of verse four 
is going to introduce to us a new theme that's going to be over, dealt with over the next several verses. It's the, it's the all-important question of who is this assurance spoken to? It's spoken to those who are in Christ, but how do you know if you're in Christ? What is the differentiation between those in and out of Christ? So you see what it's going to be. It's their walk. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about the walk of a believer, the flesh, and the spirit, our manner of life, and answer those very important questions. But this morning, just the first half of verse 4. And our theme is the righteousness of the law fulfilled. And I'm going to upfront tell you what the main idea is of this phrase. The righteousness of the law fulfilled. The main idea is this. I am no longer under condemnation because Christ satisfied every requirement of the law on my behalf. You see, the first half of this verse that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. It concerns our objective legal standing before God. These first four verses, or first three and a half verses, are all about my objective, legal, justified standing before God. When you move into the second half of verse 4, then you get into the subjective, experiential side of things my manner of life, my walk, my struggle against the flesh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But this morning is the capstone of these opening verses that assure us that there is no condemnation in Christ, that I will not suffer legal liability for my sins as I am in Christ. There's no punishment. There's no condemnation. There's no legal judicial liability. And nothing, my friends, could be more important than for you to have absolute clarity about how a sinful person like yourself could ever escape the judgment of God. How can a sinful person like yourself be accepted into God's presence? How could it be declared of you personally on that great day when the books are opened and you stand before Almighty God, exposed all by yourself. How could it be that on that great day, you could hear the declaration, no condemnation? Nothing could be more important than for you to have absolute clarity on that matter. This verse, or the first half of this verse, 
is the capstone of how it is that any sinner could be made right with God and never face condemnation for their sins. Our text says there's no condemnation because the righteousness of the law is fulfilled concerning me. It's fulfilled. Now, since this is the culmination of many lines of divine truth that we've been looking at over the course of a month here, I think it is good for us just to get back, to step back, and let's get a running start. And I am so eager for you to have the ability to be able to think through these passages accurately. That they don't leave your thinking when we pronounce the benediction, but that you can go back to Romans 8 and you can think through the wording of these first four verses. So the first thing we noted when we came to Romans 8 is that it begins with a therefore. So you have to ask the question, what is the therefore there for? And we said, well, if you look at the end of chapter 7, that doesn't really make sense. And so I'm convinced that the therefore, there is therefore, now no condemnation, goes back to where? Goes back to the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5, that great chapter, which tells me that because I have this union with the Lord Jesus, because I am in solidarity with Christ, that I am now under the reign of grace forever. When I was in Adam, when I had solidarity with Adam, when I was attached to Adam, I was under the reign of sin. Sin controlled my destiny. It's a personification. Sin doesn't really control me, but you understand. Sin controlled my destiny. Sin was sovereign in my life, and it controlled my destiny. And therefore, the only thing awaiting me was condemnation. I was under the reign of sin, therefore I would be condemned. But king sin has died. And I was united to someone else now. I am now in union with Jesus Christ, and therefore grace reigns. And grace controls the whole situation now. Grace is in charge of my destiny. So that whereas I once could only face a certain condemnation, now, because grace is in charge, I will have no condemnation. I will be accepted. I am righteous. And that forever and that last verse of chapter 5 says that grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. I am not under condemnation because grace reigns. I have pardon, and I have acceptance, and I have life, and I have security. There is no condemnation because of the reign of grace in my life. Well, how exactly did that work? That's where verse 2 comes in of chapter 8. It begins with a 4, because. This, this, this connection was made because 
The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's just a phrase for the gospel. The gospel, it has freed me, made me free. But think of it more of like a one-time past event because that's the tense of the verb. It's a one-time completed action. It freed me from what? It freed me from the law of sin and death. It freed me from the condemnation of the law. You see, when I was under the reign of sin, I was going to be judged by the law. That law I had broken. And that law pronounces a condemnation on those who have broken it. So I was going to be condemned. It's as simple as that. But the gospel freed me from the condemnation of the law. I'm not under the law's condemnation anymore. I'm under the gospel now. I'm under grace, the reign of grace. How exactly did that work? Verse 3, here's how it worked. The law couldn't do something. The law could never justify me. It could never remove the condemnation from me. It couldn't do it. My sin ran way too deep for that. It couldn't do it because of my flesh. So what the law couldn't do, God did. God sent his son. He sent his son in the flesh as close to fallen humanity as he could possibly be without being himself sinful. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he sent him as a sacrifice for sin, for sin. And what God did, amazingly, is that he condemned my sin in Christ's flesh. And Christ suffered the legal liability for my sin. He was punished in my place. And it might be a good idea so that you always remember that. And every time you read Romans 8 from now on, to pencil in some pronouns in that last phrase. Condemned sin in the flesh. How about you pencil in condemned my sin in his flesh? And then you've got the meaning all the time. You'll never miss it again. My sin was condemned in his flesh. And that was our focus last week as we fellowshiped together around the table. God freed me from the condemnation of the law by offering a substitute in my place and justice has run its course in him. Now comes verse 4. My sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus, in the body of Jesus, in order that, okay, that, that's the first word of verse 4, that, this happened in order that, the righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in me. And so my simple task this morning is just to explain to you that phrase. Because that's pretty much what preaching is. It's just elongating the text. And I think we can do that very simply under two headings. 
Christ has fulfilled my obligation to God's holy law in precept and in penalty. Simply put, the law required obedience. And Christ fulfilled that righteous requirement. And the law demanded and required death to the lawbreaker. And Christ fulfilled that righteous requirement too. He fulfilled the law in precept and in penalty. And therefore, I am freed from the law as the basis of my standing before God. And there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of the law was fulfilled. As far as I'm concerned, it's fulfilled. He obeyed and he suffered the punishment. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in precept and in penalty. Perhaps you remember hearing me say that phrase often. Let's, let's commit ourselves to really understanding it this morning. That Christ fulfilled the law for me in precept and in penalty. First of all, in precept. In precept. You know that in the whole history of the world, up until the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God never once received the obedience from the heart that he requires and that he rightfully ought to receive. He had never received it. Generation after generation after generation of men and women, they lived in his earth, they breathed his air, they drank his water, they ate his animals, and they nevertheless refused to submit to his law. He had never received, not even once, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled. Ever since the fall, there has been a universal revolt against the righteous requirement of God's law. The insurrection began with Adam in the garden. Adam was placed in a perfect environment. He was given every advantage. He was provided for in every way. God even graciously narrowed his law down to one easily defined and avoidable prohibition. And still, Adam rebelled against the righteous requirement of God's law. And every individual has, fallen, has followed in his steps. The whole history of the world and of the nations Ever since the Tower of Babel, when the Lord scattered the people and formed them into nations, is to break off the government of God. The second psalm rightly tells us that the nations are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And the policies that are proposed in high office and the rulings that are given in the courts and the ambitions of the people in power, it is all 
a systematic, progressive effort to throw off the government of God. And every one of us had our part in that. We had our part in that insurrection against the righteous requirement of the law. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, that worketh, and the children of disobedience. And we all had our way of life in the lusts of our flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were part of the nations. We were part of the insurrection against the government of God and his anointed one. That's our history, not just the history of those out there. It's our personal history. We revolted every day of our lives against the righteous requirement of God's law. You don't have to look any further than your own heart to realize how many ways you have robbed God of his rights. He has a right to lives that give him full glory. He has a right to our time. He has a right to our attention. He has a right to our love. He has a right to our service. He rightly requires obedience to his law. And you and I have robbed him of his rights. For instance, the greatest commandment, he tells us, is to love him with all of our being. And none of us does it. And we know we don't. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy that one of the terrible consequences of this is that men are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God that they're lovers of money, that they're lovers of self rather than him. And they're robbing God of his rights. And into this situation of pervasive disobedience to the righteous requirements of God's law, God sent his son. And the mission of his son is to set everything right again. He comes to make things right. And whose rights have been, have been violated? Whose rights need to be reclaimed and need to be satisfied? Who is Christ serving in the earth? He is the servant of the Lord, the Lord's servant. And his primary mission is to satisfy the offended rights of God and to come and to give to God what God had never once received, the righteous requirement of his law fulfilled. That's why he's called the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. He came to obey. Galatians 4 tells us he was made under the law. What a remarkable statement that is. 
the lawgiver submitting himself to the law that he had made for his creatures. What a condescension that is. The 69th Psalm says he came to restore that which he took not away. There had been a robbery of the rights of God. Jesus Christ was not the perpetrator of that crime. But he made restitution. He restored what he had not taken away. And he fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's law. He was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was God's blemishless and spotless lamb. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And not even Satan could find anything in him. Remember that from the end of John 14? The prince of this world cometh, but he has nothing in me. And Jesus offered to God a perfectly pure and undivided heart. His peerless obedience was absolutely voluntary. It was motivated entirely by love. There was never a law keeper like Jesus Christ. Never a fulfiller of God's law like him. You can go in and in and in and in to Jesus Christ and find nothing that's compromised, nothing that's defiled, nothing that is debatable, nothing that is questionable. It is all pure. The further in you investigate, what you see more clearly is the glory of God. Everything is bright and clean and splendid and without spot. And all of that righteousness, all of that perfect from the heart obedience, all of that fulfilling of the righteous requirement of God's law is mine. It's credited to me by virtue of my union with Jesus Christ. It was imputed to me when I believed on him. Just like a husband and a wife, because of their legal and covenantal relationship, they share assets. I share in the assets of my covenant, my covenant head. I share in his righteousness. His righteousness is credited to me, and my life is hid with Christ in God. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved from these I am, from sin and from fear and from guilt and from shame. I'm absolved from it all because his righteousness is credited to me. He fulfilled the law and precept, brothers and sisters. He fulfilled the law, the righteous requirement of the law for us as a substitute. 
but he also fulfilled it in penalty. In penalty. You see, the law had been broken, and the rights of God had been trampled upon, and there had to be a satisfaction. So the obedience required of the Son of God culminated in an obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ's people had sinned, and they were rightfully exposed to the condemnation of the law. So Jesus suffered the punishment for their sin. He redeems us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. I just illustrated the appropriateness of Christ's righteousness being mine with marriage. Because of my legal and covenantal relationship with my wife, I share assets with her. But we also share liabilities. And Jesus, my covenant head, my legal representative, took responsibility for my sins, for my crimes. He took full responsibility for those liabilities. He's going to pay those debts for me. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore that burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. And he fulfilled the law, not only in precept, by rendering to God a perfectly obedient from the heart life, but he fulfilled the the law in penalty. The law demands perfect obedience, and he fulfilled that righteous requirement for me. The law demands death to the lawbreaker, and he fulfilled that righteous requirement for me too. If you are in Christ, therefore, If you are joined to him by faith, then the righteous requirement of God's law is fulfilled in you. They were fulfilled, all those righteous requirements, they were fulfilled in your substitute, in your covenant head. God's rights and God's honor are restored. God is satisfied. You see, the mercy that saves sinners does not interfere with justice. There's no contradiction here. Those who are saved by mercy, they have the righteousness that the law demands. Christ paid the penalty for their disobedience. Christ yielded obedience to the law of God. So God deals with me mercifully, but it's still just. Because I actually have the righteousness that the law demands. It's fulfilled in me. And that, therefore, is solid comfort for the believer in Jesus Christ, isn't it? 
solid comfort. I have no righteousness in and of myself. And I am personally exposed to the awful wrath of Almighty God. But I enjoy the blessedness of having the very righteousness of God credited to me. So that the law which I had broken is fulfilled in precept and in penalty. And therefore I'm freed from the condemnation of the law. Have you come to understand all of the ways that you have wronged God all your life long? Have you come to grips with the fact that there is nothing, nothing that you can present that will begin to satisfy his justice? Have you come to grips with the fact that you are incapable of fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law yourself? And that you are unable to pay an adequate penalty for your own iniquity? Have you submitted to the service of God's righteous servant? Service that was offered to God on your behalf so that you could know a so great salvation. A law that is fulfilled in precept and in penalty. Restoring to God his offended rights and blessing you with eternal life and no condemnation. There is nothing that you need to contribute to this restitution. It is finished. It is done. In fact, if you attempt, if you attempt to contribute something yourself in order to satisfy God, you will offend him by displaying a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of what his son has done. So you come to him with nothing in your hands without any attempt at saving yourself, that no amount of law-keeping, no amount of justice, no amount of turning over a new leaf, no amount of personal reformation will count before God. The only thing that counts is whether the whole law, the whole law has been fulfilled. And the only one that's done that is Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law in precept and in penalty. So it is your work then to rest in him. To lean on him. And God calls you to stop your vain attempts at reconciling yourself to him. And he commands you to repent and to believe to be honest with God about your sin, to receive Christ's work as sufficient for your own forgiveness and for your own acceptance. Take Christ. Will you have this man to be your Savior?
Think, think about this in terms of a couple standing down here before the minister. And, and when you have heard me say, will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And she says, I do. Have you made that transaction with Jesus Christ? Have you taken this God-man to be your covenant head, your legal representative, your husband till death do you part, and he'll never die, and neither will you, he'll ensure it, and so forever with the Lord. Have you taken him as your Savior? Will you lay your sins on Jesus? Will you rely wholly on his finished work, confident that he and he alone is able to save your soul? If you will take him, if you have taken him, then the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in you. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. And then you will never, ever be condemned. You see how these four verses work together? They're the bedrock of your security in Jesus Christ. The reign of sin is over. The reign, of sin, the reign of grace has begun and will last forever. There's no condemnation if you are joined to this God-man because he freed you from the condemnation of the law by being made a sacrifice for sin and your punishment has gone on him. And he fulfilled the law in precept and in penalty. You stand before God under law and you're a goner. You stand before God in Christ. And there's no condemnation. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus, the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of your law. And we recommit ourselves unto him and to the service of our Savior. We thank thee for revealing these truths to us, for accomplishing these things for us. And we pray that we would live in light of what Christ has accomplished in his cross work. And that you would set us on fire to tell the good news to the lost around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.